Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Jefferson Cowie, the James G. Stallman Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, Staying Alive, the 70s and the Last Days of the Working Class, The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics, and most recently, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance of federal power published by Basic Books. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the Working History Podcast. Hey, Dave. It's great to be here. Let's dive right in and and talk about the book. Your book explores the multiple meanings and uses of freedom expressed often as a form of racialized anti-statism that kept the federal powers at bay, or more bluntly, white resistance to federal power. And you illustrate this theme through the history of one southeastern Alabama county from the 1830s to the 1960s, from Andrew Jackson's Indian removal policy up to Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement, and George Wallace's presidential campaigns. So it's a big book with a large scope. What's the book's origin story? Could you tell us how you came up with this idea and, and why Barber County? Oh, right. Yeah. So that that's a great question. There's two prongs to that. Why the theme and why the place? <clears throat> the theme I've been thinking about for a long time, uh, especially from my experience in labor history, is so much of labor history pivots on the state. And yet, Federal power is always, we're always suspicious of federal power. Workers are suspicious of federal power. There's an entire American tradition of fear and loathing um, of, uh, of federal power. And so I, that had always been spinning around in my head. And, and, then I, and then I began to sort of notice invocations of the word freedom in ways that basically scared me, you know, uh, even though I, I regard freedom as, you know, an important value. Um, and, and aspects of freedom are still central to, to who I think I am. But, um, but you know, you, you see it used all over the place in ways that are just kind of horrifying. And so that had been kicking around my head, and I was trying to figure out how I might write something about this. And I began to think, if I really want to be, if I really want to write this, I need a place. I got to find a place. And th- this is all in the back of my head. I really wasn't um, working on anything in particular, I just wrapped up The Great Exception literally months before. The real story, though, is that it was, I was teaching at Cornell then. It was literally 20 below zero. And my kids, my poor little shivering children came up to me and said, where are we going for spring break? And I said, I, I hadn't planned any, any trips for spring break. And um, I said, so you guys plan a trip, make it cheap, and we'll go. So they planned a trip to the Gulf Coast. And we drove down to the Gulf Coast from Ithaca. We, we got off the main road and drove through Eufaula, which is the biggest town in, Uf- in Barber County. And I just entered that town. I was like, it's, it, it, it's sort of a, you know, staged as this historic town with fancy mansions and beautiful trees arcing over two-lane boulevards. And it's all rich with history. But you could tell, like, as soon as you cross the main boulevard, it all kind of dissolves into kind of you know, mom and pop shops that are barely keeping it together. And, um, and, but my, I was just kind of tingly. I was like, this place is interesting. Um, there's something underneath the surface here. And I turned to my wife and I said, well, you know, what's going on here? And, uh, I said, Google the name of this town. She says, well, I don't know anything about it, but they had their first integrated prom in 1991. And I was like, all right, there's a story here. And so, uh, it was kind of a reporter's impulse, I guess, as much as an historian's impulse. I went back, started doing research on it at, at the Library of Cornell, and uh, I started, as any good historian would, at the beginning of the story with Indian removal. And it was it, it wasn't until months and months later that I realized George Wallace was from the county. Oh. And then when I found George Wallace, I was like, "Oh, this is fate, right?" Because he was from a different town in the other corner of the county. All right, so, so you you begin the book with Wallace. 
and his uh, inaugural address on January 14, 1963, which is most well known for the infamous phrase, segregation now, segregation today, and segregation forever. But what have we missed about this speech? So Wallace is from this kind of obscure, gritty little town in the corner of the county, and uh, uh, the way he rises to power is incredible. But when he makes that speech, he has already realized his formula. And his formula is maybe segregation, but really the core of his message, he's, not, he's only gonna get so far in segregation because he has a national agenda, right? So if you really look at that speech, what you see, it's, it's, it's about freedom from federal power. And so he mentions segregation one other time outside of that quote, that famous quote. But he mentions freedom or liberty uh, about two dozen times. That's the core of the speech. And he's not just making a speech to the state of Alabama, but he's making a, a speech to the nation at that point. That he, 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 he sees freedom from federal power as not just a Southern thing, but a national thing. And he's essentially launching his presidential campaign um, that very cold January day. And, um, and he's, you know, just so, uh, so much ambition, just raw political ambition and cunning. But if, if you think about it, he's right. Like he's only going to get so far on on the race question, which he's most famous for. But if you make your argument against the federal government, you're going to get a much bigger, cast a bigger net. You're going to get the anti-tax people. You're going to get the anti-regulation people. Who doesn't hate the federal government? Everybody's got to beef against federal government, right? It's a great strategy. And Wallace was also a study a student of Barber County history, he really read a lot of local history and he knew that the federal government was the enemy going all the way back to the beginning of Southeastern, the white history of Southeastern Alabama. One of the things that sticks out in the book, as you say, the theme that Wallace has developed there is freedom and freedom from what he sees as federal tyranny. But, but in the book, you, you take this term and concept of freedom and, and express the positive aspects of it, but you also remind us that there's another definition of freedom, and that's the freedom to dominate others. Where, where does this concept come from? The first thing I did was uh, plow through Orlando Patterson's history of freedom in, in the West, and, um, you know, and he goes all the way back to ancient societies, uh, classical societies, Athens in particular, and, and looks at the derivation of freedom. And he basically says, freedom is rooted in slavery, right? You can only understand the idea of freedom in the Western framework as not slave, or, so that's one version, not to be a slave, but the other is the capacity to enslave, right? And that's that sort of opened up my mind on this whole question. and. He says freedom is a is kind of a, a chord of three notes. There's civil liberty type freedom, bill of rights, negative freedom. And then there's the freedom to create a political community, to participate in the building of your political community. And then there's the freedom to dominate others or to have sovereignty over others. And in, when you take that idea and you stick it into a settler colonial and chattel slavery framework that you have in the American South, that suddenly metastasizes and gets, you know, a lot more virulent, a lot more powerful, that freedom to dominate. And so you see it in the dominating of land and, and dominating of the people who used to have the land, dominating of slaves, dominating of sharecroppers, whatever the case. And that can only happen as long as you can keep the federal government firmly at bay. Well, and that's what I want to return to in, in this question or, or, or mention here is that in your introduction and throughout the book, you mentioned that the protagonist of this book uh, an unlikely and tragically flawed protagonist <laughs> is the federal government. What, what do you mean by that? Right. I think I call him our uh, weak-kneed, clay-footed hero or something <laughs> like that in the book. Um, yeah, so I'm arguing against the long tradition of, of state and local rights because that is where these forms of domination, freedom as domination, happen. Now, the federal government is this sort of weak-kneed hero in the sense that it comes in occasionally and tries to do the right thing. 
almost every time in a deeply flawed half-assed way and in fact almost to the point of just enough to whip up white fears white hysteria over federal tyranny and not actually get the job done of protecting the people that they were allegedly there to protect in the first place whether it's creek indians or or african americans or whatever and 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 so it's a it's a very very problematic and intricate story of how the federal government works in this local that's why the local part of this is so important mm-hmm. is like working out the machinations on the on the county level um and yeah they kind of stirred the pot enough to make everything worse in some ways but the potential energy there uh is is the only possibility i see the potential energy of the federal government enacting these laws and controlling and and restraining white freedom is is the only possible solution to the problems i lay out in the book what one concept you point out in the book, and I think it comes from Madison, is this notion of the compound republic. And you return to it at various parts of the book. Could, could you explain that concept to us? Yeah. So, you know, one of the great questions Madison had was how to, you know, how are we going to govern this big, huge, sprawling country, right? Uh, previous democracies had been city-states. Uh, how is this going to work? And so this idea of the compound republic, that this is going to be a uh, local, state, and federal power working in this, you know, orchestrated dynamic that'll have a sort of creative tension to it. Um, and uh, we'll have these multi-levels of power um, was his solution. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it ends in civil war. What I look at, I mean, the, the key parts of the story, which I more or less tell, tell in four parts, is really where that compound republic is at war with itself, where it's where where the clashes over authority are happening, and it's at those it's at those friction points that uh, the idea of freedom is really sort of comes to the fore, where local whites demand their freedom from federal authority, demand to be able to do whatever they want with local lands, local peoples, local labor rights, local whatever it is that is kind of um, up against this kind of constant threat, this constant fear of, of sort of federal bayonets that are always kind of mythologically poised right over the hillside that are going to come in and take away white people's freedom to dominate others. In book one, or the first section, uh, the book abounds with ironies, <laughs> to say the least. And for example, we usually think of Andrew Jackson as leading the Indian removal policy in the Deep South. But in the case of the Creeks that you studied in the 1830, he's actually protecting their land from white intruders. How did this happen? Let's be clear. That, uh, so what happens in, in, the mid, in the early mid-1830s happens after Jackson's campaigns, which essentially turn the better part of several states over to white people, steals it from Creek, Choctaw, Cherokee, and other people. But what we have by the time this book opens is this nine-county region on the um, western bank of the Chattahoochee River. The Chattahoochee divides Alabama and Georgia. And by treaty, the Treaty of Cusetta, they the creek people have this land it's theirs and for five years the 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 treaty says they will there won't be any white intruders in this land and that they will be sort of protected and in the meantime the land will be kind of privatized moved from a a tribal communal base and privatized and given to the hands of individual creeks so the Creeks there, they're they're like, okay, you know, we're beleaguered, defeated people. We'll take this, um, and we'll take five years of protection, and we'll take uh, this privatization scheme and try and allow our culture to, and customs to survive. Well, uh, the unwashed democratic masses of America uh, don't they see this as the firing uh, starting gun for uh, a land grab. Instead, they're like, oh, this. Treaty's been signed. Let's go. And so they swarm into that nine county area. And Barber County is the southernmost county in that uh, region, actually. So Jackson gets angry at this and basically sends federal marshals in to kick white people out of the Creek Nation. And it's called the Creek Nation by the federal government. And, and so you have this extraordinary moment where these 
white people who are, you know, many newly enfranchised, feeling their democratic power, seizing land as promised by Jefferson, as promised by Jackson. This is the American vision. I'm going to go get mine. You have their hero, Old Hickory, basically saying, nope. And so the first act that actually happens in this town, barely a white, it's like a tiny white settlement. And uh, the federal marshals come in, uh, set fire to this warehouse they're building, kick everybody out and drive everybody out of the county. It's completely against the main story of, of Andrew Jackson. And in fact, people, when I was writing earlier drafts, would just completely read the opposite story of what I wrote because it, 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 it didn't compute. So it was, a, it was sort of you know, cognit cognitively difficult even for my readers to, to understand that. So I had to write very, very clearly, carefully, because people were so ready to prime to see Jackson as a villain. And he is the villain, believe me. He's not a, not a nice man. And ultimately, you know, the part of it is just people were going against Jackson's will. Um, and Jackson was a bit of an egomaniac in that regard. So, you know, it wasn't just principles, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, but what we see is this town born hating the federal government, right? Mm -hmm. And they turn against Jackson because Jackson is trying to enforce treaty rights that support Creek people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great irony, as you say. You know, one of the um, key themes here about this um, White's defense of freedom is that they're victims of the federal government, and for that, um, you need martyrs. And, and in this first section, you establish this with a character named Hardiman Owens. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Hardiman Owens is an amazing story. Um, he's this kind of rascal figure, unsavory guy who uh, was one of the first intruders, and they were called intruders, who come into the Creek Nation and take over land. And uh, he's belligerent, kind of chip on his shoulder sort of fella, and he's a grave robber. And you know, he was just kind of a nasty guy. But uh, in a confrontation with federal authorities, a series of confrontations, including him trying to blow them up with a keg of gunpowder, uh, federal marshals, uh, federal soldiers shoot him and kill him in a completely justified killing as far as all the evidence suggests. But what you have out of Harvin Owens is this amazing uh, martyrdom where he suddenly becomes uh, the first, you know, fighter to fall in the long struggle against federal power. And he becomes this galvanizing figure. And people are talking about marshalling troops against the federal government. And, you know, there's, you know, war plans are beginning to be drawn up and the governor gets involved. And it, it's, uh, it's very dramatic and sort of in this kind of maudlin victimization way, like uh, uh, combined with a certain heroics that he resisted federal power. And so he's the guy that sort of provides the moment for the intruders to to uh, identify themselves with a single figure. OK, so the, the white intruders now can move in. They have a justification. And you would assume that this land that they steal basically from the um, Creek Indian that it would become these small landholders and they get their family farms. But that's not really what happens at the end of this story. Who actually gets the land? Right. That's that's the <laughs> the ultimate irony of this section, I suppose, is that, uh, yeah, these speculators come in and sort of win the game. They uh Essentially, they are the ones who win because the, 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 the it begins as kind of a uh, the yeoman farmer myth and ends right. with large scale uh, capitalism and some of the most valuable uh, land in the world at that point in the black belt. All right. As you say, they uh, turn this land over in a, a very familiar tale to cotton monoculture. They become, you know, well, produces a great amount of wealth. And then, but ultimately um, leads to an attempt to secede from the United States in the Civil War, which the Confederacy is defeated. And in the in book two, in the second section, you take a look at a, a familiar topic um, of Reconstruction, but with your the themes you're using. 
What happened on election day, November 3rd, 1874 in Barber County? And what was the white line? Right. So yeah, the civil war, you know, real quick on that, you know, the thing that shocked me about this is the, the, you follow Regency or these secessionists in, in, in the area and they were real, real fire eater types. The, the thing I, before I talk about 1874, I just want to drive home. It was 20 years since they won the land before they're like ready to secede. It's amazing. It's, it's a generation, a little more than a generation, but not much. And it's all draped in glory and history and tradition and all this stuff. But it, it's the bat of an eye, historically speaking. Mm -hmm. So anyway, these guys are going to defend what they have at all costs. They've already lost the war, but they still need to w win uh, control over local politics. By 1874, Reconstruction was working pretty well in Barber County. Uh, there'd been local black officials elected. Uh, they had a black congressman going to Washington. They had uh, state representatives. And the white locals have been trying to push against this in a variety of ways, politically, and there'd been some terror and other stuff. And But finally, they, they gave up on all possible means, fair and foul, and basically decided they were going to seize this using kind of the logic of the Colfax massacre and draw what was called the white line. Um, and that is that they were going to basically violently seize control of power. And two events happened in Barber County, one in the main town of Eufaula, where at uh, midday when all the black voters had marched in from the rural areas and lined up to vote, they, in an orchestrated manner, pulled out, white people pulled out weapons from all corners of town and just started opening fire on, on the black voters. And this is the kind of thing that we'd never know anything about. Or we just have the white story, except there was a federal investigation by uh, the Republican Party. Well, it was bipartisan, but and um, but run by the Republicans. But so we have detailed evidence about what happened because of that. Um, and then there was another shooting and and pole place burning up in the northern end of the county, uh, where they they burned a, a mo shot. Uh, the son of a uh, scalawag and judge and um, and burned the votes and and this turned the tide completely on and all and for a hundred years almost for ninety years on uh, voting in Barber County after that people were afraid to vote Republican activists black uh, Republicans were driven out of town um, uh, and uh, Anybody who dared to identify anybody or cross that line ended up going to jail and going being leased into the mines. So during Reconstruction, or at least the early years, as you point out, the black Republicans in, in Barber County and the white scalawags, as they were called by their enemies, did achieve more than just a semblance of democracy. How, how did this happen exactly? It's really at the uh, end of those federal bayonets. Reconstruction worked because there was an aggressive federal intervention in this local place promoting democratic norms and institutions, right? Imperfectly, of course. There was corruption, yes, uh, as there always is in politics. But it was a functioning democracy, and it was functioning because there were rules and oversight and, and power, federal power. And so when those whites seize control back, the great irony is they are destroying democratic norms in the name of their own personal freedom and their own freedom to dominate others. And they use that, those terms. I'm not imposing this. This is, these are the fighting terms under which they are struggling. Some people want to say this is just rhetoric, but I actually believe that it is a fundamental belief in what the nature of freedom is. It's not just political cover. So moving on to book three, uh, the Jim Crow era section of the book, which takes it really from post-Reconstruction years to, uh, through the end of the 19th century and, and up to World War II, to the dawn of the modern civil rights era. And this is the section of the book where you specifically address labor on in at least two occasions. And you have a chapter on convict labor in this uh, area of Alabama. And my assumption is that this flourished because uh, the federal government had receded here. And yet you show 
in the book that it did become an issue for the gov federal government. How did that happen exactly? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I call this section the federal government in repose, that this is the era in which certainly compared to Reconstruction and certainly compared to the New Deal where it ends, it is in repose. It is it is pulling back. The use of convict labor, which is, you know, well-documented in a variety of our colleagues' work, comes to the forefront for um, the federal government in a funny way, and in a way that I think, you know, this sort of compromised, uh, pragmatic sort of politics that flies in the face of the sort of politics of purity we often see uh, in, in progressive politics today. I mean, this, you know, Booker T. Washington is close to uh, or has connections to Theodore Roosevelt, and Booker T. Washington sees a sort of moderate segregationist who believes kind of still believes in democracy and he says hey uh theodore roosevelt you should assign, you should you should uh choose this guy uh, for the federal bench and um you know so he's it's like there's no there is no good character in this story but he begins to sort of uh hear these cases against convict leasing and there are federal investigations of convict leasing uh by the turn of the century and um but Again, there's a sort of recurring character in different forms throughout the book that are sort of these milk toast people who have the right idea but can't quite deliver. And uh, we, that's what we see in those federal cases. And it's really not until a couple of decades later in the 20th century that the institution begins to die. Yeah, and the descriptions you have of convict labor are, are some of the most gruesome conditions they worked in. I mean, they were working them to their death in a you know, variety of, of, of different occupations and making a lot of money for the locals. You know, they, what you do show or illustrate is just the sadistic nature of what the system had wrought, especially by those who are, are running it and reaping the benefits of it and then defending it in court right. as, as a... Uh, you know, when there's any attempt at reform by these local judges who are federal judges, that they're defending it in the name of freedom. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, just like a lot, all sorts of exploitation uh, mm -hmm. of workers, of, you know, everything mm -hmm. is, is defended on the names of freedom. I do want to correct, or not correct, but sort of explain okay. one thing to listeners, which is um, that there are no mines in Barber County. Uh, that. Okay. Yeah, that the mines are up in Birmingham, a long way away from um, right. uh, Barber County. But the kingpin in the convict leasing system, this guy, talk about sadistic, he used that word, J.W. Comer, mm -hmm. uh, who's one of, from one of the biggest planting families in Barber County. He is, he is the guy who kind of orchestrates and runs the convict leasing systems, run, has people running around all the county jails and, and buying buying up convicts to send to the mines. And, and as you say, the most horrific and at times just sort of gratuitously sadistic setting. Mm -hmm. This is a this is an opportunity or this is a setting where somebody like Homer, who is just has something wrong with him, mm -hmm. can let his freedom fly right in the form of just brutalizing other human beings. Um, and uh, and the whole Comer family that comes from Barber County plays sort of different aspects of the story of of uh, freedom in, in in Alabama. Well, speaking of the Comer family, we we find another one of them several decades later, in which you you know return to a familiar era for labor historians and labor historians in the South. And that's uh, during the 1930s, the NRA period, and, and when the New Deal comes to the South. And so we have Donald Comer, who is a, uh, is he the son or the? Uh, uh, nephew. Nephew. Of JW, yeah. yeah, the nephew. And he um, is a textile magnate who runs a series of mills, including one in Eufaula, if that's correct. That's right. You know, it's an interesting case because, uh, you know, paternalism is a question that, that defines many aspects of our field of labor history. And, um, uh, you know, and he bought up, well, his dad, actually, he, his dad gave it all to him, B.B. Uh, Comer, who's the governor. He, he took this grimy, disgusting, horrible 
disease-filled mill, like the worst of, you know, the dark satanic mills, and turn it into kind of a nice place. I really sort of struggled with this question of what did this mean? He, you know, gave everybody nice uniforms and put in bathrooms instead of one outhouse and fresh drinking water and clean air and uh, ran on electricity and instead of coal and, uh, you know, spiffed it all up. And everybody loved Mr. Donald. He, they absolutely loved this guy. He, and he embraced the early New Deal. He embraced mm-hmm. the first New Deal and uh, uh, was on the textile board and um, uh, during the National Industrial Recovery Act and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, what do you do with that? Here's, here's a person who kind of used his freedom from the federal power in a fairly effective way, a fairly more than benign, a fairly generous way, more generous than he had to be. He was sort of a Christian gospel kind of, or, 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 or social gospel, excuse me, figure. But then when the second New Deal comes along, and it's actually about empowering workers, and it's actually about providing unionization rights and collective bargaining and stuff that doesn't necessarily empower him, but empower his workers to say what they want rather than him telling them what he wants. Uh, he, he fights off unionization elsewhere in, Uf- in his other plants. In Ufala, they're basically by his side all the way. Yeah, you call this system uh, enlightened paternalism. And this, uh, and that may have been the term they used at the time. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, that has been an issue, when, especially studying uh, the textile industry in this time. And, you know, where some historians are just flat out critics of it and uh, see it as a mere tool for domination, particularly of the poor whites who were sharecroppers and tenant farmers and did move into industry and and become a working class. And then there's another side of this coin where paternalism is seen as a method that workers themselves were able to manipulate and carve out some spaces of of cooperation, of making their workplace better. But but you offer, I think, a, a, a rather a little twist on both those that I don't think you'd necessarily deny that was the case, but you you use your theme to reinterpret or explain the way you see how paternalism works. Could could you expand on that a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... What made writing about this and coming up with the argument about this a little more tricky was this was kind of a golden version of paternalism. This wasn't just, yeah. you know, hey, do you want a ham at Christmas uh, kind of thing. This was, you know, they had a summer camp on the coast and they had bands. They had a band and a baseball team and decent pay. And it would be condescending to say anything besides that the workers really like this guy. And I think it's not our job to say otherwise. But what it did do, and I think this is what you're driving at, is it kept the federal government out of regulating industrial work. Well, Mr. Donald, Donald Comer, used that freedom fairly effectively, or fairly generously, perhaps. The long impact is essentially, and that is the key to Southern history in a lot of ways, is to keep federal government out of their affairs. And uh, and that got really aggressive. I mean, he got blatant about it with the Second New Deal and on into the uh, 1940s and 1950s, especially the FEPC. And and so what you see is sort of that also, his, his very nice example also becomes cover for a whole lot of other really bad behavior um, that allows the simultaneously freedom from federal authority allows you to run your plan as you want. Now that could be run well, like Donald Comer's plants, or run really in bad ways, as many, many other places were. So when we move to book four, I mean, one thing you've shown here is Barber County is kind of the uh, farm system or the breeding ground for Alabama white politicians, and not just a series of government governors, but probably the most famous to come out of this era or this area is George Wallace. You know, the first question I ask, how was he a product of Barber County and what were his particular strengths as a politician? His most cherished memory as a child is vote counting. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> when his his grandfather ran for, now it eludes me what it was, judge or something, commissioner or something. And they're up all night counting the votes and he's just looking at the chalkboard and it's just 
the most exciting thing he's ever seen. And he begins already in this little town of Clio, pumping fists at an early age and talking to people and and schmoozing and uh, and then at the time the other side of it, of course, is is that Wallace was a was a fairly reputable boxer, right? So he's a fighter, he's scrappy, and uh, you put those two together, and you have quite a character. And early on. Uh, he became uh, an aide, legislative aide in, uh, in the state legislature uh, as a teenager, and he wrote every single member of the state legislature to introduce himself. My name's George Wallace. I'm from Barber County. And stood on that famous star where, um, uh, you know, where Jefferson Davis was sworn in as president of the Confederacy and said, I, I will be governor one day. And so he's got it in his soul. He's got it in his family. He's, he has it in the in the is boxing, um, and he has it in Barber County, right? So Barber County, you know, the, I make a joke in the in the book somewhere that Tuscaloosa has football, Muscle Shoals has music, and Barber County has politics. Half a dozen governors came from Barber County, and it is a political town, and uh, he just ate it up. Um, and uh, so he was a he was a political beast um, in his heartbeat politics, blood pump politics. He's just like he, uh, it's who he was. And he begins kind of as a vaguely progressive. I'm going to pave the roads and create trade schools and I'm going to be kind of, you know, not I'm not going to play the race card. Uh, I'm going to be um, moderate, modest, on, moderate on race. Um, but he worked his ass off. You know, he didn't have a car. He'd hitchhike all over the county, meeting people, getting rides, whatever it took, and you know, gets elected, and then and then get finally gets a judgeship in for the three county area, including Barber County, and that's when he becomes the fighting judge of uh, of Alabama. So you say he was a protege of uh, Big Jim Folsom in the book. Right. Uh, what would have passed for a Southern moderate or? vaguely liberal again not challenging the color line but then you know once brown versus board drops that then the, the game changes like the federal government comes in and says it's it's time to integrate and then new lines are drawn and that kind of space that Folsom and Wallace hold slightly ambiguous modern on race not gonna we're not gonna have politics revolve around race and we're not just going to race bait that falls by the wayside and there's much less room for moderation at the time yeah and so wallace uh you know sees which way the wind is blowing as far as um the uh local white politics in the wake of brown and uh you know we have the famous episode where he decides he won't lose to a segregationist again in rather colorful language uh, I was going to say, that was a pretty clean telling of that story. Right. And, um, you know, so he looks like, from all appearances, that he's going to be a Norval Faubus or one of these, you know, last gasp of these overt segregationist governors. But that doesn't happen to Wallace. He's the one of all of them. I mean, I guess you could say Strom Thurmond in some mm -hmm. way as well. But Wallace is the one who emerges you know, with a movement behind him. Thurmond kind of folds into the Republican Party as it's changing. Wallace stands out. And why is that? <laughs> I mean, I actually think it's his genius to move towards this 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 idea of freedom. And that, uh, I mean, and he's just good. I mean, he's just plain mm -hmm. good, right? But mm -hmm. I think he sees, he has that national ambition and he sees that use and mobilization of anti status sentiments across the country as 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 super powerful but he he learns something really clever i think in the late six in the late 50s and early 60s and that is every time he loses on every he loses everything you know every political fight he loses but every time he does he he, he comes out swinging against the federal government he he just keeps losing forward right if you you know his big standoff is with the federal elections committee in 58 and uh, where they want the ballots in Barber County and he won't give them to him, but he ends up giving them to him. But then he's able to fight. He, that's when he wins the moniker, the fighting judge, because he's, re he's the resistor against federal power, even though he completely lost the fight. And so throughout his career, he, he translates those 
losses of the, vo- the Civil Rights Act, some with the Voting Rights Act, into I'm your man. I'm going to keep fighting these guys. I'm going to keep fighting this intrusion, and I'm going to I'm going to defend your freedom. Uh, and and it's uh, that and a lot of hard work and corruption. So Wallace is establishes this model or discovers this model that it's not actually posting victories, but always being a moving target or always being a victim in the protection of your supporters' freedom from tyranny. And which which not only can play in the South very well among the white segregationists, but he finds it can be transposed throughout the nation. And I would even add it can be transposed through time up to the present. It's the enduring theme throughout the entire book, all the way going yeah. back to, to the intruder's war. I mean, he's never chastened by an apparent loss or defeat and will never admit it. It's all opportunity, and uh, until he has a sort of conversion moment um, later on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, in book four, the final section, it's not just the um, an analysis of Wallace, but you examine voter registration drives in Barber County and throughout Alabama and the South in general, especially through the SELC Scope campaign and and SNCC as well. Their voter drives along with the heroic efforts, I think the book includes as well, uh, on the part of local female activists here who really carry the ball for the, the, the voter drives in these areas. One unsung hero of this era is the attorney politician, Fred Gray, who we know if you're familiar with the Montgomery bus boycott was the lead attorney in the federal court cases that actually did in segregation on municipal buses. And his life and career stands in counterpoint to Wallace, the way he presented. Could you tell us a bit about Fred Gray during the period you examine in the book? You know, we know about him in the 50s. What, what happens to him in the 60s and and then the story you tell? Yeah, there's a, a really interesting comparison with uh, Wallace and Gray. I hadn't really kind of thought of, I mean, I, they're clearly diametrically opposed sort of characters. Yeah, I mean, Gray is young, he's earnest, hardworking, believes in the law, avoids the flash and the substance. And when he does run for office, not having enough bombast is his whole problem. He needs he needs a gospel singers even to get his word out, right? And um so, uh, but yeah, he just grinds through the courts and just taking on case after case of of disenfranchisement and and the and the schools and the and he's in and out of Barbara County all the time uh, and voting rights cases. Uh, the desegregation of schools doesn't happen for takes. Uh, the better part of two decades to actually desegregate those schools. And he finally uh, runs for the um, state house in um, Alabama. And he technically, you know, technically wins in 66, but then there's a runoff and it doesn't work. And then he runs again and they steal from him. Finally, in 1970, he, he wins and he's the first one of two people uh, who become the first black representatives elected since, um, Reconstruction. Like, you know, he doesn't talk about freedom, even though he's practicing the idea of freedom we talk about, right? He's talking about rules, institutions, laws, boring, hard work stuff, not just beating your breast about uh, freedom. Yeah, and from his perspective, and as you write that, you know, citizenship and true citizenship rights, that, that Gray is devoted to this idea that you need the power to give it. What, what Wallace and them are seeing as unfair power or tyranny, Gray sees this as a guarantee right. of, of yeah. citizenship and of rights. It's the which, tension throughout the whole book. Is yes. What will the federal government guarantee here? Mm-hmm. And that's what he keeps going to court to find out, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it's, it's, and it's a, it's a long long battle mm-hmm. the point for me that really crystallized everything about this and this isn't really about fred gray directly but indirectly and that is after the voting rights act of 65 and the scope organizers are trying to organize voters get voters registered which is a huge thing and this you know one of these classic places that nobody's ever studied before the vast majority of people weren't in selma or montgomery or uh, Memphis or wherever, right? They're just in 
places nobody's ever thought about with the civil rights movement. They had a decent campaign, but when the numbers get back to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta on these county level registration drives, they can't figure out why some are better than others. And Hosea Williams is kind of the, the SCLC lieutenant on this. And he looks at Barbara County, he's like, they got a decent movement. How come their numbers are so low? And then Wilcox County right nearby has not as good a movement, but their numbers are better. And then finally he puts it all together and realizes federal registrars, the presence of a federal authority in those counties that is the enemy of white people, the enemy of white freedom is the key to solid numbers. So you can have all the activists in the world, but until you get the federal government in there, and that's really what so much of the civil rights movement was about, really, was trying to trigger federal authority to come in, to make black people federal, not state and local citizens, right? If you could make a claim on federal citizenship under the Voting Rights Act, under the 14th Amendment, whatever it's gonna be, that was the win, and that's what Fred Gray totally understood. Mm-hmm. I was thinking if you could um, summarize this, especially the uh, position of the those who wanted to maintain segregation. I think the usual view is their argument is the federal government is coming here to interfere with our power to dominate. And your reinterpretation of this is it's coming in to prevent our freedom to dominate. So they're putting it in this glorious terms, you know, deeply rooted in American culture, and who's going to, as you ask, I think rhetorically, who's going to oppose freedom? Right? Right. It's, it's always a good thing, right? And I think what the book does is really complicate this, this concept and shows what, that, that it isn't an unalloyed concept of human liberation, that it actually can be wielded in a way that makes lives of voters, of workers, and of, you know, all people who don't possess power make their lives a lot harder. I I do think this is a bold move to subject that concept to more scrutiny than we have. All right, let's let's, uh, bring this all together here. And I have two points I want to make. First is that in every section of the book, there's a twist or irony On one hand, Barber County whites' anti-statism and quest for freedom applies to all white residents, that they're going to benefit from freedom's dominion. But it always seems like an elite group ends up ahead at the expense of the poorer and less powerful whites. Do you see freedom's dominion as a form of elite manipulation, or is it something else? Yeah, I think uh, that's very insightful, Dave. Um, the um, in in each case, more or less, you kind of have a coalition around whiteness um, that slips pretty quickly into an elite domination of the question of whiteness during the land grab. Uh, obviously, the speculators win, but the one that is most profound to me is after the 1901 segregationist constitution, where they essentially whites agreed to lose the vote themselves and more whites over the course of the ensuing decades lose the vote than blacks basically um and and they give that up they cough that up um and that gives more money to the the planters and the big mules uh the the that is the economic elite of the state of alabama and so yeah um i do agree but it kind of there's a it doesn't necessarily start that way there is a kind of I hesitate to use the word solidarity, but uh, there's a there's a unity around the question of of whiteness, but that readily evolves into a domination of economic elites. Um, it's a very hierarchical society, very highly mm-hmm. stratified, right? So it's it's not surprising that that that, that happens. Yeah, that's a familiar story even today that you'll see those who are adapting Wallace's populist style, for lack of a better term, to the present, will will use these terms, will base their whole political campaigns on their opposition to federal power. And yet, as they keep getting reelected and reelected, you don't see much improvement, especially in the poorer areas and the poorer parts of the Deep South. The The winners are very clearly delineated. So it, it does serve... And, and, and I think you're very convincing in the book that there, like you say, a unity of interest. This isn't false consciousness, and yet uh, on the parts of the poorer whites, and and 
there is wedded to this concept of freedom. But once that is established, the federal government is defeated, loses its nerve, beat back, then that sets the terrain for this, this process of now the economic elites can take advantage of this new context. Yeah, it's less false consciousness than an eternal false promise, right? That if we can just if we can just achieve this, yeah. then the new day dawns, right? And yeah. what happens is the those in power essentially remain in power. You close with an emphatic defense of the use of federal power. Where in history, in this history, can we draw any glimmer of such a thing being realized? And and to, and I mention that because today we're seeing, particularly among Southern workers, um, you know, a nascent uprising for unionization, for demands of, of better working conditions, for for things like healthcare, for even you know respect of individuals, for um, even climate change. You're you're starting to see signs of this uh, coming from workers across class, class racial uh, coalitions. And it seems to me this book does speak to these times for workers in those conditions. Where, where is there any glimmer of hope? Or maybe it has to be something new. Right. So there, there, a cynical read of this book, I think, would be the federal government came in just long enough to stir everything up and whip up a sense of white freedom and white you know, resistance to federal power. It never delivered the goods. It never closed the deal for non-white or working white working class people. Um, and I think it's a fairly legitimate argument. But the potential energy, I think, of federal intervention is kind of the only hope. And you, I mean, I think you see it in the initial phases of the marshals trying to remove white intruders. I think you see it in the uh, first 10 years re or eight nine years of Reconstruction when black voting is supported. I think you see it in attempts to integrate production and regulate uh, under the FEPC and regulate uh, the labor market, provide unionization during the New Deal in World War II. And you certainly see it during the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Um, obviously, we're in the, another period of long redemption um, from the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act period. But it's the only tool. It's the only... If somebody wants to show me another possibility that will provide a lever outside of local circumstances that can provide people the, the, the capacity to act for their act on, upon themselves and to have agency over their circumstances that is not federal authority, I, I'm all ears, but I don't, I don't see it. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for talking about your book, for agreeing to be one of our first, if not the first guest of the relaunch of Working History. And, you know, as I've told you, I think this book is a just a, a great achievement. I think it can be uh, used in coursework. I think it, it can be read by anybody with an interest in history. I think it's a retelling of the past. It also speaks to our present. And thank you for being so generous with your time and your comments. Well, I appreciate you being such an astute reader, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.